0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Thanks again for joining in. It's nice to be here subbing for Shelley, who is teaching on the west coast at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center between Seattle and uh, Portland, Oregon but in Washington state, leading with a few others, the uh, Young Adult Retreat, the annual Young Adult Retreat That Shelly has been teaching for a number of years now. And Shelley will be back leading the half-day retreat this Saturday, if you're interested, Saturday afternoon, one to five. And while I'm doing announcements, I'll just mention Niels Heyman, a wonderful teacher of ours who we don't see as much because he's now living in Australia. He'll be teaching tomorrow night uh, online and in person, a uh, wonderful teacher, 7 to 8.30. I'll do the, lead the loving kindness practice group a week from Friday. And uh, several of us are leading a practice period at the retreat center, the 11th through the 15th of this month. And Corey's doing the annual work retreat out at the retreat center the last two weeks of July. So that's coming up. If you're interested in any of that, you can just contact the office. So, would you think about that particular training? I'm sure it pushed a few people's buttons, you know, our, a lot of our minds at least, they don't like to be told what to do. But uh, it's nice actually to be willing to take up some of these trainings and not to think that in any way that's the only training. But we learn, you know, something like the mind, which is, you know, not so easy to understand, like, what the mind is, to understand the nature of the mind. The way we learn about the mind is we ask it to do things. And in a way, the mind begins to reveal its nature when we ask it to do stuff. Like, honey, would you be willing to be interested in the experience of hearing? Would you be willing to sustain this interest? And then what happens? Like what, ha- what gets in the way of that sustaining and what happens when the mind does sustain that simple interest? And like I said, during the guided instructions, it's not like we're, you or I were doing the hearing, right? We were recognized that hearing was happening, but we can fall into that wrong understanding that I'm hearing. You know, I'm hearing the sounds in the room, like the blower here for those of you in person. You know, we've got a relatively loud furnace blower that just circulates the air in the room, and maybe some traffic sounds and a few other things, but the dominant sound is just the blower. And it can feel, you know, like a burden. Oh, I gotta keep listening. To the sound of the blower. But hearing the sound of the blower is happening. And those of you at home, you know, whatever sounds in your space, whatever they are. So it's that very particular effort to be interested in the present moment to connect. And we're basically choosing to use something convenient, like the sensitivity to sound, to be in the service of that desire to connect, to be intimate. Because the uh, alternative is that the conceptualizing or conceiving mind will conceive what the present moment is and will think that thought, connect with that thought, but we won't be aware that it's just a thought. We'll be, what in Buddhism we would call, deluded, Thinking something is something that it's not. So we often use these simple training mechanisms to break the spell of habit. That's why it's hard. Anybody find it hard? Yeah. It might be nice just to hear from some folks, Um, people here in the room, you know, if you don't mind, if you want to share, I can repeat what you say. But especially if you're going to say a few things, you might want to sit on the bench and I'll hand you the mic, and that way people online can hear you. And people online, you can just raise your hand digitally, or if you don't know how to do that, just go ahead and unmute yourselves. And I'll put the, my PA mic to the speaker of the computer and that way everybody here in the room will hear what you have to say. But it, be, it might be nice just for us to normalize what is it like to undertake that training for 30, 35 minutes or whatever we did it for. What did you learn? What was hard? What felt good about it? Or just questions that you have about it too. And I'll respond to any of those questions. Anybody feel like unpacking your experience a little for the group? What did you learn? What was hard? What was interesting? Yeah, please uh, do you mind coming up? So I'm not going to turn the camera for those of you in the room, just because we're recording this for the YouTube channel, but your voice will be recorded, not your image.
2: So interestingly, um normally when I am sitting here and I get lost, I use the sound of the blower to come back and say, okay, am I being aware? I'm aware of the blower, I'm aware of the sound of the blower. And yet when I was instructed to just pay attention to the hearing of the sound of the blower, I found
0: that suddenly difficult
1: yeah so what's that about that sustaining because I think it's really the sustaining because I'm guessing most of us if the mind was invited appropriately most of our minds would be willing for a moment to recognize hearings happening right so that, I think for most of us, the problem arises with this, this uh, in invitation really to keep hearing in mind, to not forget, you know, which is really goes right to the essence of what we mean by awareness, mindful awareness, sati. It's keeping the present moment in mind that this is, that hearing is being known. Like, that's what we're keeping in mind, that hearing is being known. Hearing is being known. And you see, it's uh, the reason it's so difficult is the mind is in the habit of generating, constructing meaning and doing stuff and doing whatever, basically following the momentum of habit. And so now we're asking it to we're not telling it don't do that but in a way the no don't do that happens because we're saying yes do this keep the hearing in mind keep the hearing in the mind and so it has to release the other habits that it has because we're asking it to do something and so what that reveals is the force of habit that normally governs the mind But we don't really see that force of habit until we ask the mind to do something, like keep hearing in mind. Then, and maybe only then, I mean you could do it other ways of course, we really see, oh yeah, the mind has a, you know, we say, a will of its own. But basically what we're saying is, there are habit energies governing this mind. Whatever the mind is, it's being governed or it's being affected by habits. To think this, to do that, to compare, to imagine, to fantasize, to think this is stupid, you know, all the different things that the mind is inclined to do. Yeah, other thoughts? Online, here in the room? What else you learn? Yeah, Rob.
2: I notice, even after practicing this over a decade, how easily and how susceptible I am to distraction and fantasizing and doing anything other than concentrating on what I'm doing. I mean, sitting here quietly is easy, but the Consistency of mindfulness is a very, very difficult
1: practice. And uh, one thing that we can talk about together tonight and reflect on together is you know, because appropriately we don't want to turn our practice into some war, you know, like good versus evil because uh, we, we do that a lot, and we sort of know how unhelpful that can be. But just because, you know, that sort of dualistic good versus evil isn't gonna help, it doesn't mean that we're not training the mind, right? We're, the, the practice isn't just to come to a place like Common Ground or join in online to program, and then just let the mind do what it's inclined to do. Because then we just get, we're just basically reinforcing whatever those tendencies are in the mind. So the whole point of the teachings and the community and having a place, whether it's on Zoom or the physical space here, having teachers and teachings, the whole point is to create the supporting causes to train the mind, to retrain the mind. So it's not gonna just keep doing what it's been already trained to do. So we're reconditioning the mind. And basically, you know, the way we say that or might describe that is from our habits of distractedness to the newer habits of being present with things just as they are. And so, we should expect there to be, appropriately, some pushback, some sparks, some resistance. It's not a war. I mean, we'll turn it into war over and over again, and then we'll realize that doesn't help. But it is a training. And uh, this, and the real art is like, how can I do this training? How can I persist at the training And either we're gonna simply be reinforcing the habits that are already habits, or we're gonna be doing the more challenging work of establishing a new habit. It's kind of like, those are our two choices. Doing the same thing and getting the same result, or creatively, one way or another, using skillful means, which basically means using whatever works or whatever helps, were remembering right you were using the force of remembering what the new habit is that the new habit we want to train in by like remembering to recognize the present moment and in this case tonight we were using mm-hmm. the ordinary experience of hearing to help keep the present moment in mind because hearing happens in the present moment. Yeah, other thoughts that come to mind, other experiences that you learned, and then, you know, what Rob mentioned, which is so common, is just recognizing the force of habit. It's just uh, like, did frustration arise? How did the mind relate to the frustration? Because there's something about that, like, Whatever arises, just keep remembering, well, it just is there still hearing? Yeah, hearings being now. We don't always have to like something might arise and it looks like a big problem like I'm really frustrated and I really believe I'm not good at this. But we might not need to address that. We might just realize yeah, that's there. And look at it, hearings here too. Yeah, yeah, please. And then we'll go to the two folks online, Erica and Jessica.
3: Um, hearing is difficult for me. It is a, something that I, of my senses, it's, you know, there are people who can really repeat tunes, and I'm not one of them. And I, I'm highly kinesthetic, and sometimes I think I have a merging of senses, so it's very difficult for me to separate senses. So I receive most hearing through my sense of touch. So I hear sound touching my body. So like, I guess um, there's such a palpable feeling of receiving my senses through my sense of touch um, that I I just can't do it separate. That's one question about what is that? And is that just sloppiness in terms of it? Or is that there's just submerging of senses? And the other one is, I kept hearing otherworldly music, that seemed to be coming out of there. And I wondered, and then uh, when words or songs arose, glory, glory, hallelujah, um, I would go back to sounds in the room, but there were lots of sounds in me that weren't just worldly sounds. So those are my questions.
1: Yeah, thanks, Han. Yeah, but really, it's all of that, None of that sort of uh, matters, right? Because hearing's hearing, whether it's something that we might call internal or something that we might consider external. If it's hearing, it's hearing. Because remember, it's not about the hearing, it's about being intimate with the present moment, with the way it is. And we're using hearing as a convenience, as a skillful means to not be lost thought, let's say, just to kind of make it simple. So whatever that activity is and whether it's blended with other senses, especially the the tactile sense, that's okay, right? Because is it here and now? Is it something being known here and now? Is it related to the experience of hearing? Yeah. And then you can ask yourself like, is, is this something the mind is thinking of? or, you know, whether it's visual or uh, language-based or whatever it is, which is fine as long as then it's recognized. Oh, it's, so it's just this. I got lost in thought or whatever. And yeah, hearing's here. Because hearing doesn't go away. It's always here and now. And it's always like this thing of blending is just in some ways an insight because... It's artificial, like to imagine that, that the experience of hearing exists in a compartment that's isolated from everything else, you know, it's just not the way it is, right? Some people have the strength of attention that, in being aware of the hearing so specifically, they're literally not aware of anything else because of that strength of attention. But but that was not part of the instructions. The instruction was just to keep hearing in mind. And even at the end, I mentioned like to notice there's a wholeness to that, right, an inclusive quality, and that's related to that sense of well-being that comes, not because of hearing, but because of more being grounded more in the continuity of the present moment, being less. Less and less, somewhere else, in a fragmented, you know, in a state where that is affected by greed and aversion. Because most of our thinking about things and being lost in thought is being shaped by the, even if it's subtle, the force of greed and aversion. You know, the dramas in our mind are affected. You know, the activities affected affected, driven by greed and aversion. Let me turn to somebody online. Erica, do you want to go next? You can just go ahead and unmute yourself.
4: Yeah, so um, I'm rarely, if ever, attuned to hearing during my meditation. I usually attuned to the breath. So one of the things that really I noticed was that when asked to focus or remember hearing, because it was novel, Presumably, I brought much more attention and awareness to that practice, and experienced um, less distraction than I do when I focus on the breath. So, I started thinking, in hindsight, that focusing on the breath, because it's become routine, um, I just slip into a half focus, and you know, aren't really as aware and attentive, and so distraction and other things become much more prominent so just being asked to do this really that point of comparison with what usually happens in my breath focus meditation was just really um instructive for me to see the difference there thank you
1: yeah thanks for sharing with us erica yeah that's why it's good to mix it up because everything just you know it's just the way our mind works things become routine and there's just something seemingly built in to how we are that and it makes sense I'm I'm sure it's been developed through the evolutionary process that when the system can do something on autopilot it's going to do it on autopilot because it it just leaves more bandwidth for other things you know and uh So, but although it might be useful in an evolutionary sense, like survival sense, it's not necessarily helpful in an awakening sense, because awakening is not the same as survival. We're really trying to understand, and there's a kind of penetrating power that comes with the continuity of presence. It's like the secrets of The mind, the secrets of the present moment, the way it is, can't stay hidden when there's that non-judging and relaxed, persistent curiosity about the way it is, about what's being known. It's like everything is revealed in the space of the present moment if the mind is persistent enough. So we just start to see what hasn't been seen as clearly before. And it doesn't have to do, you know, like Erica's saying, it, it was the freshness that made the difference, not that someone couldn't, like someone could have done the opposite, like really have been working for many years with the hearing, and then some teacher, or for some reason, they really bring their attention to the breath, and they would have been able to say the same thing that Erica said, like, yeah, just, saw a lot more than I normally see. I had a lot more continuity, right? A lot more momentum and that stability of awareness. Thanks for sharing, Erica. And Ruth, would you like to go next? Yeah,
0: thank you. Can you hear me
1: okay? Yeah, we hear you.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciated this exercise. Um, For me, the effort of sustaining focus on on sound And the challenge of that reminded me a bit of when you're falling asleep while watching like a movie or a TV show, and you so badly want to pay attention, um, but then you keep falling asleep, and that was kind of like the forgetting. And, you know, that effort, you're trying so hard to stay awake and watch it, but you keep drifting off. It was really familiar to me. And the particular type of forgetting I noticed myself engaging in was like, like, analyzing the sound so for example at one point I was hearing like the hum of my computer and some bird sounds and then I was like "Ooh, epiphany moment are these sounds really separate like where does one sound end and the other begin and then before you know it I'm like philosophizing about the sensations you know and so I was still in a way focused on the sound but not so much the sensation which I think might have been what we were intended to focus on rather than thinking about sound. Um, So in those moments of forgetting, I found it really helpful. I found the direction to just remember really helpful. Um, I think that direction kept me from shaming myself or feeling like I was doing it wrong because forgetting is such a natural, automatic thing. So when I just thought to myself like, oh, remember to listen to the actual sound, It was easy to ease back in to attending to that Um, and it didn't feel forceful
1: if that makes sense yeah
0: so i appreciated that direction
1: (laughs) yeah no that makes a lot of sense i really appreciate that sharing and and i think it has a lot to do with uh, the heart has to learn to trust what's really 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 simple and that's not easy because culturally, and I think just maybe the way things have been structured in our minds, we generally have reverence to things that have more complexity and a kind of rejection or mistrust, interestingly, of things that are simple. Because it, I don't know if anybody felt this at any point during the um, sitting time, where the, you know, the instruction was just to be, keep remembering that hearing is happening and is being known. Did anybody have a sense of like loss or death even, you know, to, to be maybe a little bit more traumatic? It like, uh, like the heart or the mind is losing something of real significance. Like when I'm because I'm choosing to be interested or to keep in mind that hearing is being known, I'm. there's something of real value that's being lost or something of real value that's ending. Anybody have that felt or sense about that? Because it is a loss of a kind, right? There, there's a something is disappearing. I mean, basically whatever else the mind would be doing is ceasing because the mind is doing this, it's being intimate with, you know, the remembering hearing. Hearing is happening, hearing is being known. Other thoughts that come to mind, experiences that people might want to share? And, you know, you might sense already, you know, what we're talking about tonight is, it's not the only skill by any means that we're learning, but it's a really essential skill, which is this uh, recognition of Veka is the Pali word for um, dispassion, seclusion, and it, it relates to how the mind its relationship to sensuality, to sense experience, and the mind's relationship to thoughts about sense experience, and the mind's relationship even to the sense of a me who has existence and sense experience. So, dispassion or seclusion is like realizing that that (coughs) of fixation on sense experience, the actual sense experience like hearing and the diversity of our sense experience and our thoughts about sense experience and even the sense of a me who has sense experience that the mind can let that go. That that whole obsession or fixation or interest can be abandoned for a period of time. And then the interesting spiritual question, well, what is that like when the mind chooses? Because that's what we were doing with hearing. There was so much of sensuality that we were choosing not to be interested in because we were choosing to be interested in hearing. So we were choosing to not be that attentive to our thoughts about other experiences nor to the other experiences that were showing up in the moment, Right? And so there was a lot of letting go, a lot of dispassion about all that other stuff that the mind wasn't attending to. And that's what generally, especially when we get a little momentum, that's what is generally experienced subjectively as well-being. Well-being is more about what's not there the mind not having to attend to all of that diversity of sensuality of sense experience because initially it's just being with this one aspect, the meditation object, let's say. Other thoughts, comments, questions that come to mind about that? Yeah, Kermit, and then we'll go to you next. I'm going to come up front. Appreciate people willing to be here. It's just for the online community. It just makes it better to hear it from your own voice.
2: Yeah, thank you, Mark. My name is Kermit. Um, one of the things that still so amazes me is that after years of being somewhat diligent about doing this, it's so easy to just not, uh, you know, just just conk out. I did that tonight, and I know it's because I'm. Um, I think it's because of this following a thought, or not with it. But well I'll, snap out of it, and I'll wake up, and I'll say to myself, "Oh, that's that's just what the mind does," and I kind of not make a problem of it. I just let it kind of do what it's doing. Kind of, I'm able to sort of ignore it and tune into the. Uh, well, I use the uh, the nada, the you know, the inner listening. Then,
1: and then I'm fine, so that it happens to me a lot, so. I'm anyway. sure people appreciated hearing that. And uh, you know, this is not a joke, you know, what, what's the difference between someone who's just been practicing a year and somebody, you know, like myself, who's been practicing now for more than 40 years, is that it's not that destruction doesn't happen, but the mind is not gonna make a problem out of the wandering, right? There's a way to to just realizing, as soon as the, like I'm talking now just from my own experience tonight, not just theoretically, but actually what was going on while we were practicing together, you know, and the mind would wander. And then in that moment of noticing that the mind is wandering, the mind would realize that hearing is right there, right in, right, like, the distraction, whatever that was, some more seductive than others, right? But whatever the distraction is, wisdom has that capacity to see what else is here. Oh, yeah, hearing is here. So that, that, um, insight that Kermit's talking about, because I really think it is an insight, is like, it's like, how wisdom understands distraction. And there are more skillful and less skillful ways to understand what distraction is. And a skillful way of understanding distraction is a way of understanding distraction that's not distracting. And an unskillful way of understanding distraction is the mind recognizes distraction in a way that is interrupting, that separates the mind from the present moment. The mind gets some bubble because of the distraction and what the mind takes the distraction to be. You see how that could be such a powerful insight that in in a funny way we never know distraction, right? Because as soon as there's awareness, it's not a distraction. And wisdom can really get that. If I'm aware, then this isn't a distraction. And if I'm aware, then whatever the meditation object is, whatever like, I'm supposed to be paying attention to, it's gotta be here, because this is the present moment. Oh yeah, there's hearing, right here. And it's just to see that for yourself, it really makes the practice seamless. And it doesn't mean the mind didn't get distracted, And when we're distracted, then the mind is unaware, so it can't practice. So in a sense, the mind's off the hook because it's distracted. And then there's an awareness of distraction and a non-reactivity because there's wisdom that understands this is being known and everything else is right here anyway. Whatever else that might be recognized has to be here because this is the present moment where Everything is. Oh, yeah, here it is. Hearing. It, here it's being known. Yeah, thanks, Kermit, for that. Yeah, I don't know your name. I'm Jay. James? Yep. Come on up, if you're willing. Uh,
2: my name is Jay. Oh, Jay. I, I think that Mark just answered the question or the Thing that I'm mulling over, so I'll well, bring it up anyway. Uh, is trying to reconcile the internal music versus the internal dialogue that I have. And you, you may have just answered that: but what is distracting and what is not. Um, when I, if I were to hear music in my I'm trying to listen to the ear blower, um, I, I think that would be distracting. Yeah, probably maybe as distracting as the thoughts that I wrestle with. <laughs> so that, that was just kind of the thought there, but I just thought it was an interesting thing that you know there are in perhaps there are internal things we can hear that are not problematic.
5: Yeah,
1: and and that's basically just a good assumption anyway, that nothing is problematic, because the the present moment, this is an insight, right? That the present moment is always inclusive, and uh, I know that the teachings can be a little confusing about this, you know, like one sense gate versus another sense gate, but. The here and now, like, yeah, the, the, the idea is so compelling that this isn't right. And so it might be better to, like, replace that idea that doubts, you know, thinks that I'm doing something wrong, you know. It might be good to train the mind to have, like, a replacement might be. Could this be right? <laughs> or could this be okay? Like just that basic presumption instead of, oh, this isn't right. Because that's very compelling, you know, and in different ways we all have that habit. It's certainly probably more in some places in our life than in another place where that doubt comes in, where we just feel like we're doing something wrong. And, uh, you know, this is like, related to our patterns of shame and other heavy states for us and it's really nice in this practice like sometimes I say it this way and I'm not sure the best way to articulate it but one way I'll say it is you can't break it you know like our practice awareness practice you can't break it you can't really screw it up oh I've so screwed up and but it really feels that way like I, I even now i'll have that like uh i'll catch myself having like gotten lost during the meditation period gotten lost in thought like seemingly a billion miles away from the present moment and then and then come you know awareness comes back online and then this very compelling thought like i have totally ruined this set <laughs> i might as well pack it in and get on with my day or something like that. And it's so compelling. It's like, you know, to kind of turn this into something worthwhile isn't worth the effort. And it's really good to just have a counterweight to that, like, yeah, and this is okay. It's totally okay. For a long time i don't do it as much now but for a long time when i was teaching and even in my own practice i would just use that phrase can this be okay and you know for some people that can be a little triggering but it just has to be asked as a real open question not a sort of forcing something to be true but just like can this moment be okay because what the heart this sort of intuition or wisdom in the heart might understand is it's not a it's not a question about the absolute nature of this moment like is it okay or is it not okay? It's really a more pragmatic question. Is it skillful to relate to this moment as if it's okay? It's really that pragmatic question. Like if I relate to the moment as if it's not okay, what does that set in motion? If I relate to this moment as if it's okay, like what I'm doing, what I'm experiencing, that it's not okay versus it's okay, which of those two is onward leading to more learning and more ease? And that's the way to. That's the pragmatism that the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, are really grounded in totally about being, you know, functional in the sense of retraining the mind, the heart, to be unfolding in a way that's in the direction of release, as opposed to in a way that's in the direction of tension. Ann, do you want to go next? Sure. Yes. My name
6: is Ann, um, yeah, I guess I, um, had a question. I practiced with anchors, like the breath and sound and um, even sensations in the body. And then sometimes I'll practice with like just kind of an open awareness. And I'm just wondering about your thoughts or your own practice of like, how do you go back and forth between them? Um, like, if my mind is really busy, I'll find, like, okay, focusing on the sound feels really good, but then sometimes it will be too, like, tense, and I'll need to, like, relax back and, like, not focus on anything, and sometimes I'll go back and forth throughout a sit doing that. Um, so just curious if any thoughts about, like, what is helpful with using anchors and using open awareness and, like... Does this depend on the day <laughs> or um, kind of how do you use that
1: in your own practice or have used that? Yeah, thanks, Anne. It's a really good question. And uh, again, I think it's just uh, pragmatic. So we need to have some sense of where we want to go, but right? aspiration. And the aspiration is like the heart, in the direction of release, the heart, the unbinding of whatever feels tight or bound up, what is in the, and seemingly, you know, cause we're sort of feeling our way around, what seems to be in the direction of the unbinding, the releasing, the putting down of what's, what can be put down, as opposed to what is onward leading to getting bound up or being just sort of in a floaty place where nothing's being learned. And and uh, sometimes we switch things around because we're averse or because we're greedy, and then we wanna notice that because that's not onward leading, like to be um, under the spell of like, if I really, I'm gonna go to you know a more concrete anchor and I'm going to really dig in and I'm going to get somewhere once and for all in my practice and then we'll notice what that sets in motion or this is too hard I'm going to back off and then what, and is that aversion or is that wisdom and they, then we just it doesn't matter what you do like you might sort of give yourself a slap on the wrist no you're sticking with this Or you might say, yeah, let's back off and do a more open awareness practice. But whatever the choice is, then just observe what that sets in motion, whether it helps or not. Because a lot of times, I mean, you'll get different answers from different people, but ultimately, there's no way around this. You have to become independent in assessing whether what you're doing is onward leading or not and it's uh we don't want that responsibility we and a lot of us at least really want some wise spiritual parent you know to tell us what to do you know and then we just follow this wise thing and then we get wherever we think we want to go but it it just doesn't work that way because we have to develop our own independence and intuition about the aspiration, like we're pure, part of what we're doing in our practice is we're purifying what we think the heart, what's available for our heart. Like what do we mean by ease or release or peace or freedom, right? Because initially it's just sort of, they're just words. But then over time there's some intuition about like the peace, the release, the unbinding, Like what that experience is and what might actually be available like a way of being and then that helps us like having some sense of the aspiration intuitive and independent then helps us understand like what's the mind doing now how's the mind relating and is it in that direction or not or am I just following habit doing more of the same, getting the same or am I Am I, in a skillful way, supporting this moving in the direction of this aspiration? It's like, uh, you know, which the example that's used a lot is when you're hiking in the mountains, you don't always have a a clear line to the peak. But every once in a while, you get a little clarity and you go, that's where I'm going. You know, I'm going, I'm going to climb that mountain. And then you're in the woods or you're in a... Canyon or whatever but you don't really have a sense maybe where it is but you don't know but, but we want to have a sense like each step is in the direction of that place I want to go but we don't always have a clear line you know where we're, we have confidence but that's what we're feeling you know about those choices and part of it is a sense of, oh yeah, this is onward leading to what the heart truly desires, that that dropping of what's extra. But equally, we develop intuition what's not in that direction. This seems to be in the direction of of somebody like me wanting to get rid of something or wanting to become somebody or wanting to get something, right? And so then, that just raises interest that oh is this suffering? Is this extra? Because when we're aware of that greed or that aversion, then the awareness of that greed and aversion isn't the greed and aversion. Then we're back practicing again. There's some relief like as soon as we realize I'm trying too hard, it's already a relief to realize you're trying too hard in your practice, isn't it? Or that you've been complacent and just sort of going through the motions. And you know, like uh, Rob was mentioning, it's very common when, like we might have some momentum and then in a way the mind indulges in the tranquility and it can get into that really dull state, that sleepy state. Because it it's no longer interested in practicing, it wants to make a bed of the practice you know the tranquility that has shown up and then just that like oh this is nice but is it onward leading because the tranquility the wisdom sense is like i can't count on it things will change like the sit will end and then whatever nice feeling that will be gone but it's not like you have to abandon nice feeling. It's really about just being interested in it. I meant to say that in your comment, after your comment, Rob, like when we do get some nice tranquility or just a sense of inner peace, it, it's not like it's dangerous to feel good, good feelings, pleasant feelings. It's just that we want that real, vivid, intimate presence, oh yeah this inner well-being, this tranquility is like this, it's being now, right here. And that's gonna happen anyway, like even with the mindfulness of hearing that we did tonight, if we got a little momentum so there was that well-being, because the mind wasn't getting pushed around by the diversity of our experience, and just the simplicity was experienced as tranquility, then we need to keep the tranquility in mind even as we're hearing because it's associated with the continuity of hearing is that well-being of simplicity, of non-distraction. We have time for one or two more reflections if there are any other thoughts that come to mind, learnings or questions. Even experiences that you've had in the past where you've gotten a little continuity of present moment awareness and what that was like. It's nice to have those testimonials from other voices in the room. Yeah, Jessica, please. Hi. Um, Yeah, I I think it's an interesting practice for me because I think when I first started out, it
5: was sort of a relief from the anxiety that would arise because paying too much attention to the breath, I guess. Um, And so there was something that was really nice about having this sort of, like, bath of just noise that would come through or just sound that would come through. And I think um, at some point I heard, I think it was Michelle McDonald did a meditation where she was really talking about being receptive to sound and can we wait for the sound of, like, the bell to come? and and to impact or you know, impact the sense as opposed to, you know, sort of be on it, like, decibel, (laughs) sort of cut it short. And so it's something that I've been playing with because the tendency is so much, um, like, to put that, you know, listen to the sound, really have a veneer of thinking over it where, like, it's sort of, like, sensation and the, like, knowing of what it is, kind of, and, like, sort of, it's sort of, like, it takes the sensation out of it a little bit, Does that make sense. Um, unless it starts being thinking in there. So anyway, it, it slips back a little bit. I'm
1: just wondering what something to say about that. And yeah, yeah, that's good. And it reminds me a little bit of what Erica said earlier mm-hmm. in the conversation, because uh, here in this room, you know, our predominant sound was the blower, which is a little bit like what uh, Kermit mentioned, the inner sound, the nada mm-hmm. sound, Uh, Not as a word that sometimes uh, a Sanskrit poly word that just refers to that inner hum background sound that some people hear, and uh, so. But when you're in a more uh, like outside or uh, in your space at home, you might have had other more specific distinct sounds, and then you get that phenomena that Jessica was talking about, where we see a lot of that. Nature, the conditioned or habit nature of the mind to either lean in almost as if it's going to grab a hold of oh, sound, you know, or take a hold of the perception when the mind recognizes what that sound is. There, we can detect a kind of hunger in the perceptual process, like the way the mind recognizes the sound, like it's a little like uh, greedy or almost like. You're playing a contest and you want to beat your, the other people to recognize that sound. And then what else is there? And, and all of that sort of energy, which wisdom is going to recognize as a little off, a little tight, a little not needed. Like Jessica mentioned, with some practice, like if we don't react to that hungry, even aggressive, underlying in a subtle way underlying nature or habit of the mind if we just observe it without turning it into a personal problem then we might recognize that how unnecessary it is because that's what really causes those unnecessary habits to go away and i for one and i bet i'm not alone with this had this problem with mindfulness breathing how many of us when we took up the training to be aware of the inhalation and aware of the exhalation, did we notice how hard it was just to receive the experience of breathing in and just to receive the experience of breathing out without that deep habit of needing to manipulate the breath or get tight about the breath. It's not easy to just Observe or be aware of the breath coming in and the breath going out. there's just that, but that kind of uh, thing. That let's just call it extra, and it's really the you know animating force of greed and aversion. But you know, in this case, at a very subtle level. But we need to see it. That that's a more subtle insight into dukkha. It's per- the pervasiveness of dukkha that whatever it is that the mind is knowing it that triggers a subtle greed and aversion Mm -hmm. and even a subtle ignorance like ignoring what's neutral and getting spellbound by what's pleasant and being aversive with what's unpleasant and it's so incessant and it can break open a deeper kind of compassion like where we we have a more honest sense of what Dukkha is, what sense existence, you know, existence with sense experience is. It's oppressive. And it's not about being nihilistic, it's about being realistic. Oh, this is what it's like. And no wonder the mind seeks out distraction because without distraction, we're more likely to sense this kind of pervasive tension, tension in how the mind relates to sense experience. It's got to ignore the neutral stuff because it's neutral. It's got to like the pleasant stuff because it's pleasant. It's got to want to get rid of the unpleasant stuff because it's unpleasant. You know, and that reflexive conditioning is oppressive. And wisdom will see it. And then that clarifies the aspiration, like, oh, that's what the Buddha means by release. And that lines up with what my heart deeply desires. It wants release from this oppressiveness, this being bound up with our likes and dislikes. So we have to leave it here, it's nine o'clock. Really appreciate all the great comments and questions that people brought up, felt like a nice conversation. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time for maybe two or three breaths together and let go the words. Everyone, so nice to be here together. Have a nice week.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
1: Thank you for listening.